Okay, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. And let's go ahead and go and start with the prayer. Please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the blessings you've given us for this amazing world and this creation that you've made. Father, you're so worthy of our praise and so worthy of our worship. We come to you today to bring glory to you, to always worship you, and we are in hopes to learn more about you this evening. Please be with this class tonight. Help us to know more about your creation and your will so that we can better serve you, follow you, and love you, Father. We ask all of this through Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to our second lesson on our possibilities possible. So last week we talked about the problem of evil, the atheist's logical dilemma that says if God exists, he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, and evil shouldn't exist. Because evil does exist, there either isn't a God, they say, or he is not all-knowing, all-powerful, or all-good. We reviewed several different theodicies that attempted to explain how God and evil can both exist. We then discussed the two theories and their problems that attempt to explain and reconcile God's omniscience as it relates to free will, determinism, and complete exhaustive foreknowledge. Finally, we review the nature of time being a, an attribute of existence defining sequence and duration and how God experiences an unending duration of time. Now let's take a detailed look at another view that relates to everything we've discussed so far, open theism. The classical or blueprint view in theology alleging that the future is exhaustively settled stems from Plato and Greek philosophy. The ancient Greeks used divination for everything. Nobody, including kings and rulers, would make any decisions before first going to the oracles to see what they should do first. The philosophers then started thinking that if the oracles and the gods can tell us what the future holds, that means that the future must be out there for the gods to know. And if the future is already known, then that means we can't change it, and it must be settled and determined. This idea started to go even further. If we can't change the future, how can we be, how can we be morally responsible for it? That's why the majority of the Greek stories and plays deal with the topics of fate and free will. Plato then added that not only can the future not be changed, but perfect beings shouldn't change either because that which is perfect cannot be improved or diminished. Therefore, the Platonists argue, God must be immutable, meaning he can't experience any form of change. They say that this naturally leads to two different traits or aspects about God. First, they say that God must be atemporal, or that he is outside of time, because if he experiences sequences or durations of any kind, that would be a change. Second, Plato said that God must be impassable, meaning God can't have any emotion, nor can he be impacted by anything in creation. Again, they allege that if God has emotions or reactions of any kind, it would be considered a change, and perfect beings don't change. Therefore, all reality must be eternally settled. 
This Platonic viewpoint had a huge cultural impact on everyone in the first few centuries, including Christians. This is how the two leading theories explain the blueprint worldview arose within the church. That every, if everything in the future is eternally settled, it must be due to either God's will, Calvinism, or God's knowledge, Arminianism. Plato explains, and then this was adopted by Augustine, who actually made it into church canon, that God is sovereign because he is inflexible. His ruling authority over creation is supreme because he isn't affected or impacted by his creation. In the first few centuries, there was this mindset that Plato, I'm sorry, that Plato and the Greek philosophy was obviously correct. So they had to read scripture through this lens. So the unchanging God and thus the settled future worldview were all developed after the time of the Bible in order to mesh and make sense of what scripture says while still holding to the Hellenistic or Greek foundational idea of a perfect God being an unchanging God. There are two basic questions that this all leads to. First, is Plato's view, or the classical view, biblical? We'll go into a lot of detail here in a minute, but I believe the answer to this question is no. Furthermore, what is praiseworthy about it? Is having an unchanging character admirable? Let me say this a different way. Let's suppose that Steve here is a perfect person. Not too hard to imagine, right? Well, perfect Steve is extremely happy as he's walking into the room. And he sees a young woman weeping and wailing in sadness in the front row. Would it be admirable for perfect Steve to just keep walking in on his happy, merry little way and continue on to his seat with no regard or res emotional response whatsoever to this obviously hurting woman? That would be very unlikely. <laughs> this is true. I think the answer would be no. It's more admirable to show compassion and to react to the needs of others. So I believe that God is flexible on some things and inflexible on others. God is immutable or unchanging in God-defining attributes like love and goodness, but he's flexible in his experiences, plans, and, and interactions. Plato originally used his idea of perfection for abstract, term, uh, abstract forms like mathematics and not to describe a living personal being. He simply applied his theories of perfection to describe a supreme deity. I submit that the future is not eternally settled, but it is partly open to possibilities. Now let's examine the open view of the future and reality. First, and I want to foot stomp this, I believe that God knows all things, meaning that God is omniscient. Open theism is related to the nature of reality and what does and does not exist as certainties. The discussion of God's knowledge is a side effect. This view does not limit God's knowledge or abilities. As an example, God does not know about or have the ability to create a round square or a married bachelor because it's illogical and doesn't exist. This doesn't mean that God is somehow diminished or less deity because he doesn't have this knowledge, but knowledge just doesn't exist. God knows everything that exists perfectly. 
reality includes future possibilities. Some of reality, like the past, the present, and some of the future, is definite and perfectly known by God as such. Other parts of reality, meaning some of the future, is indefinite, possibly this, possibly that, and perfectly known by God as such. God settles whatever he chooses ahead of time and opens up possibilities ahead of time to whatever extent he chooses. At a very simplified level, I like to think of this similar to those Choose Your Own Adventure books. I don't know if everyone remembers those. These were books where the reader could choose between different possible storylines or decisions. In the same way, God sets the parameters to reality with limits to openness. The author knows how it will all end, just not which path may be chosen or selected to get there. Here's a simple diagram to kind of show that no matter what choice and path that may be selected or chosen, the end result is still the same. For example, if someone chooses path B and then goes B1, they still arrive at event 2, which God may have determined to occur. God is infinitely intelligent and can anticipate each possibility as perfectly as if it was a certainty. People fear an unsettled future possibilities because having limited intelligence, it's easier for us to focus on one choice rather than trying to juggle multiple choices. For example, it's more difficult for us to be a one-man band than it is to play the cymbals. God can focus on trillions and trillions to the trillionth power choices as if there was only one choice. If playing God in chess, you will lose. <laughs> they say that a novice in chess can think ahead three moves. Okay, if I go here, then they may go here, and then I'm going to go there. Then it gets a little fuzzy. A world-class player can think ahead 30 moves in different combinations of their moves and the opponents. For example, okay, if I move in one of these five places, they may go in one of these three different choices for each of those. And then I may go here or here for any of those choices. God can think of every move as if it was the only move. With infinite intelligence, he doesn't have to divide his intelligence between different choices. For example, four moves in, God may say, and no more than 17 moves is checkmate. Well then, three moves later, based on your choices, he may say, well, now in no more than six moves, but maybe as few as two is checkmate. God has anticipated every possibility as if it was a certainty since the foundation of the world and is able to have a response planned. An open theist has the same assurance as an Arminian, but with a smarter God. Any God that requires a blueprint is limited. So the main issue at hand is this. Does the nature of creation include real possibilities? The settled view says no. The open view answers yes. The primary issue in this discussion is not about how much does God know and when does he know it? As I've said several times, God is omniscient. He knows all reality perfectly. I think we can all agree on that. 
What we may not all agree on is what we consider the term reality. Now let's go ahead and take a deeper look at Scripture. Does the Bible support an, a partly open view? If so, what is the Bible's witness to it? I'm going to provide different categories in which I believe that Scripture does support an open view of the future. We will then examine several different passages for each of these categories. There are many more passages that I could have selected, but I chose to just go through a few to illustrate the point. So first, the Lord regrets. In Genesis 6, 5 through 7, God is sorry and regretted that he made mankind. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Can you regret something that turned out exactly as you knew it would? Arminianism, or that you ordained to happen, Calvinism. Not the infinitely wise, I suppose. For example, what if I go to a car dealership to get a new car, and I find the one I want and open the hood and there's no engine. So I go talk to the salesperson and I say, hey, this car doesn't have an engine in it. And they say, yeah, this particular model is sold without an engine. I say, okay, that's fine. So I go ahead and complete all the paperwork to buy the car, and then I go to try to start it to drive it home, and it won't start. So I'm upset and I go complain to the sales manager, hey, this car that you just now sold me without an engine will not start. That's crazy, right? If I knew that there was no engine when I bought the car, it doesn't make any sense for me to be upset about it. Next, let's look at 1 Samuel 15, verses 11 and 35. In this passage, God regrets and is sorry that he made Saul king over Israel. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Then verse 35, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, God was genuine, so there must have been at least a possibility that Saul would have been a good king. We see this in 1 Samuel 9, verses 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people, Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Next, the Lord confronts failed expectations. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 4, God expected his vineyard, Israel, to yield good grapes, but it didn't. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
can God expect an outcome but get another outcome if he foreknew or foreordained the results? God even asks, what more could he have done that he didn't already do to get the good grapes, but still only got bad grapes? The open view takes this at face value. At least a possibility existed that Israel would yield good grapes. In Jeremiah 3, verses 6 and 7, and then in 19 and 20, God thought Israel would return, but instead she was faithless. Starting in verse 6, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Now skipping down to verse 19. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but... Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. How could God repeatedly say, I thought, but, if he eternally knew or ordained that Israel would not do something? Again, the open view accepts this, the easiest reading here that there was at least a possibility that Israel would be faithful. The Lord gets frustrated. Ezekiel 22, 30-31 I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all that they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Can you look for something that you knew or ordained would not be there? There must have been a possibility for this passage would make sense. The Lord tests people to know. Genesis 22, 9-12 When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God gives the time that he knows, now, and the cause. Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac. If God already knew or ordained what would happen, why did God make this statement? Next is Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So Israel was kept in the wilderness for 40 years to test what was in their hearts or if they'd keep God's commandments. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet, or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So God allowed false prophets to be correct in their predictions to test to see if Israel loved the Lord. 
So does God test us for our sake and not his? This would be a good interpretation if scripture didn't say the opposite. I believe that this explanation stems from a faulty interpretation of the text. This interpretation results from reading preconceived notions and beliefs into the text rather than allowing scripture to speak for itself. It seems from scripture that God tested people to know what they would do. In these passages, only God seemed to gain knowledge from this testing. The Lord speaks and, and thinks of the future in subjunctive terms using ifs. First, let's look at Exodus 3:18 through 4:9. In this passage, God is speaking to Moses about possible courses of action to uh, when the elders would choose to believe him. God tells Moses to do certain things so that they may believe. If not this, they may believe that. Let's go ahead and take a look at the passage. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his skin was leprous. It, was, it had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. In this passage, Moses was an open theist. He asked God, what if they don't believe me? Even after God told him they would, guess I'm in good company. So God says Moses should just tell them that God sent him. If that doesn't work, throw his walking stick on the ground to become a snake. And if that doesn't work, put his hand in his coat to become leprous. And if that doesn't work, then to pour some water from the Nile out his blood. The elders believing that Moses was sent by the Lord is certain. The number of miracles it will take for that to happen is not. There was a determined reality, both flexibility in how and when it would take place. Next is Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. 
So God led them using a longer route in order for them not to get into a fight. God thought that if they had to fight, the Israelites may change their minds about leaving Egypt. God seemed to choose the route based on the most probable outcome if they ended up having to fight the Philistines. But God still says that if they do have to fight, they only might return. This scripture seems to indicate that God sometimes makes decisions based on future possibilities and probabilities. Ezekiel 12, 3. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile, and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go from where you are to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious people. Turned out the people didn't understand and were still deported, as God said might happen. Was this whole illustration for Ezekiel's benefit somehow? If so, scripture never tells us how or why. If God knew or ordained from all eternity that they would definitely not understand the illustration and would still be deported, is he being misleading at best or lying at worst? Let's say I tell a friend of mine to go to my car and get the $100 bill that's on the passenger seat of my car. If I am certain that there is not a $100 bill in the passenger seat of my car, would I be guilty of lying or toying with him? Now let's read Ezekiel 4, 12 through 15, and lose our appetites. God tells Ezekiel to cook food on human excrement as fuel. Ezekiel says no, and God changes his mind and allows him to use cow dung instead. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people, using human excrement for fuel, the Lord said. In this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Not so, sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread on cow dung instead of human excrement. God doesn't say if in this passage, but it's still an example of an open future where God is willing to work with his creation and make changes accordingly. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If anything is completely fixed and ordained, it was the death of Jesus. Jesus still requests to change the plan of the Father, but it either wasn't possible or it wasn't within the Father's will. But still, Jesus' request hints that sometimes changes are possible, which leads us to the next category. The Lord changes his mind. Any thoughts, comments so far before we continue? That's a lot of information I know. Okay. Prayer. Mm-hmm. It's fixed. Why would we pray? We'll be getting to that. Okay. <laughs> That's actually one of the reasons why I started looking at this in the in the first place. This whole idea. I I'm going to basically give kind of a mini testimony uh, in the fourth week of this class, and that's basically what what happened. Is I didn't I had a problem with prayer, and then I started researching things and came to this conclusion because I didn't like the answer, the normal answer that was given. Mike. 
Okay. Fair enough. Okay, so Jeremiah 18, 3 through 10. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do with it. So God may declare that he will destroy or bring good to a kingdom, but if they change their behavior, God may change his mind. Here's a little context for this passage. The people thought that there was no hope because God said that he would destroy them. And God is telling them that it is possible to change his plans. God showed Jeremiah the potter who is able to alter the clay if it's not turning out exactly uh, the desired way. Now let's look at Jonah 3, 1 through 4, 2. Here, God told Jonah to preach to Nineveh and that in 40 days it would be overthrown. Then when they repented, God changed his mind and Jonah was upset because he knew God would relent. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. If God knew that Nineveh would repent, was he lying when he said Nineveh would be overthrown? How can God relent from something he never intended? Also, did you notice what Jonah said? Jonah was an open theist. Jonah knew that God would relent and change his mind, and so he didn't want to go preach to them in the first place. Other indications of a partly open future. First, Numbers 14, 11 through 35. God is frustrated with Israel and wants to start over again with Moses as he did with Noah. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? 
how long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a great a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will see, ever see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall, every one of you, twenty years old or more, who has counted the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb son of Jephunneh and Joshua son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for forty years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For forty years, one year for each of the forty days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to the whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So Moses argues to forgive Israel and mentions that the Egyptians will hear about it and question God's abilities and character. God relents and decides to forgive Israel, but they will wander for 40 years in the wilderness one year for each day they explored Canaan, and then all will die that witness God's glory except for Joshua and Caleb. 2 Kings 20 verses 1 through 6. God tells Hezekiah that he will die and not recover. Hezekiah prays and then God decides he will add, add 15 years to his life. In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah son of Amos went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly, with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. 
before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and, and this city from the hands of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. If the future was already known or decided, was God lying when he said that Hezekiah was going to die and not recover? If the future is settled, how can God add 15 years to Hezekiah's life? In the next few passages, Israel sacrificed their children and God said he never told them to do it, nor did it ever enter his mind that they would do such a thing. Jeremiah 7, 31. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Jeremiah 19, 5. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Jeremiah 32, 35. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. In all of these passages, God explicitly says that the practice was not something he commanded or told them to do. Further, if he knew in advance that it would happen with absolute certainty, how can God say it never entered his mind? The open view can accept that God was surprised with this improbability. In Matthew 24, 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the upcoming destruction of the temple. Here he says, Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on Sabbath. Why is Jesus telling them to pray for something if it's already known with complete certainty whether or not it will happen in the winter or on the Sabbath? Everyone believes in the possibility to alter the future when praying. This is particularly true with intercessory prayers, but like I said earlier, I'll begin to that in a future in a future lesson. Our next example is from 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Then a couple verses later, at the end of verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Apparently, we can slow down or speed up the second coming, meaning it's not a fixed date. Mark 13.32 tells us that the Father knows about the day and the hour. So, how can the date not be fixed, yet God the Father knows? Good question. I think it may be like telling a child, I know when you'll be allowed to date or drive. The exact date is not something that's literally on the calendar, but the parent knows what to look for to know that the child, and the parent to be completely honest, is ready and prepared for it to happen. Lastly, 1 Samuel 23, 10-13. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. 
Will the citizens of Cala surrender to me, surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servants. And the Lord said, He will. Again David asked, Will the citizens of Cala surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about six hundred in number, left Cala and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, and he did, he did not go there. So after hearing this prophecy from God, David leaves. Therefore, one, Saul doesn't go there either. And two, obviously, the people of Cala didn't turn David and his men over to Saul. The only coherent way of understanding this passage is if the future is partly open. God told David what would happen given the possibility of him staying in Cala. Since that possibility didn't happen, the result was not actualized into reality. If the future was exhaustively settled, either due to God's determinism or foreknowledge, how and why could God make a clear, definitive statement that something would happen and then it doesn't? I believe that this passage only makes sense if the future is at least partly open. Any questions right now? Think of it. Yeah, I think uh, what I was going to say earlier, um, God's omniscient and knows everything, but apparently sometimes chooses not to reference it. Okay. He interacts with the people and limits himself or something. Example, Jesus could know what his disciples were thinking and did sometimes mm -hmm. and responded to it without any verbalizing. And then other times he was frustrated or acted surprised. So apparently he wasn't referencing that knowledge. Well, again, I think that God and Jesus, therefore, as part of God, God knows the past and the present 100% complete, all of it completely. It's just some of the future is where I believe that's some of it's determined, and some of it is open. So I think in some of the aspects, yeah, God can read people's thoughts because they're having those thoughts. That's the present. And then other times, if something happens, it may catch him off catch him off guard, or he may be surprised by it because, again, he wasn't expecting that specific possibility or probability. Is what I believe. But I mean, we're not limiting his power by no. interpretation. He could control it down to the mind. Absolutely, if he created the universe in a different way, I believe. I believe that the way that God chose to create this universe, he self-limited, let's say. He created a universe in which there are aspects of reality that don't exist yet. Some of the future does not exist yet, I believe. And like I said, it's kind of like the married bachelor. It's God, there's no such thing as a married bachelor. It doesn't exist. So God lacks that knowledge, not because God is not God and not omniscient, it's because that knowledge doesn't exist. In the same way I believe some of the future does not exist, that's why God does not have knowledge of it. What is, how do the Calvinists respond to that? haven't talked to him yet. <laughs> they probably do not like this. You got a pretty strong case. <laughs> Go ahead. It might be my take on huh? it. Huh? Truly God knows everything that has happened, everything that now is going to happen. He knows it. Okay. As far as gonna happen, just in one specific example, I'll use myself as an example. He knows 
I have to make a decision or I'm going to do something here. He's given me free will. Mm -hmm. He knows every possible decision that I possibly could make yes. and what that outcome could be. Could be, yes. And, or would be for that decision. Mm -hmm. And when I make my decision, he knows what the outcome will be. That doesn't prevent God from being disappointed in the decision that I make. That's where the regret comes in. I'm not sure because I think I make decisions all the time that God's disappointed in me. Well, yeah, <laughs> I do too. But I'm just saying he knows everything Absolutely. that would happen depending on what decision I make. And I can make any number of decisions that would please him. And I can mm -hmm. make any number of decisions that would disappoint him. True. It's kind of like the chess example I mentioned earlier that he, he knows every possible combination of moves based on any possible combination of moves. He just may not know which move you choose at that, at that next moment. Yeah. But he, once you do, then he knows every possible move from that move, etc. So, any other thoughts, comments? Okay then. Well, so next week we're going to add another layer onto the ideas we've talked about so far and discuss, I mentioned yes last week, that I have a different variant on the free will theodicy called the warfare worldview theodicy. So we'll be talking about that next week. I guess we'll go ahead and get out of here a few minutes early today. So thank you, everyone. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.